Hello, everybody. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Sonnenstein, and I'm excited to bring you another episode of Beyond Prison. So thank you for listening. Today, we're talking with Brett Grody of the Abolitionist Law Center, and we have a really great conversation that touches on a lot of subjects. We talk about an abolitionist approach to the law, healthcare in prisons, and Philadelphia's new district attorney, Larry Krasner. We've got a few more episodes coming, uh, including one on the intersection of abolition and the environmental movements, so stay tuned. And remember, you can always find us on Twitter at beyond underscore prison. And if you like what we do, please consider chipping in a couple dollars at our Patreon at patreon.com slash beyond prisons. Thank you so much. Here's the interview. So I'm really uh, excited to have you here today, Brett. Um, We're speaking with Brett Grody who is the legal director of the Abolitionist Law Center. Um, And we're going to talk about movement lawyering and what it means to be an abolitionist lawyer and the work that you guys do. Um, And I thought just to start, if you could just tell uh, folks out there who maybe haven't heard of uh, the Abolitionist Law Center, um, what the center does, how it started, what you do, um, and and just we can start off there. That would be great. Uh, Sure. The Abolitionist Law Center was inspired by the struggles of political and politicized prisoners within the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections, people I've been working with prior to going to law school. And myself and uh, Dustin McDaniel founded the Abolitionist Law Center in 2013. This was the year I graduated from law school for the purposes of um, doing movement lawyering work and providing legal representation, uh, communications, strategy, public education, and a host of other relevant services to pushing back against the um, you know, unprecedented prison states that we live in. So that involves a lot of civil litigation against the Department of Corrections here, challenging solitary confinement, failures to provide medical care, um, you know, protecting political rights, fighting censorship. In addition, we have, in recent years, taken on increasing numbers of criminal appeals and have made the fight against life without parole a major part of our docket area. Um, But in short, we are lawyers who not only want to provide services to those who are obviously underserved when it comes to access to legal counsel, but we want to do it in a highly politicized uh, manner, recognizing that the um, the criminal legal system itself is just saturated with political intent and power relations, and we want to do it in a way that will strategically help uh, those that are most impacted, those that are incarcerated, formerly incarcerated, their families, um, you know, uh, fight and win strategic victories that will build movements to, you know, push back and reduce and roll back um, the prison state, as it were. Thank you for that. Um, And I want to kind of follow up uh, on uh, the term that you're using there so that uh, we're all clear uh, on what this means. And um, if you would, uh, would you define what you mean by political or politicized prisoners? And how do you see prisoners in these categories as different from other prisoners? Um, Sure. I'll just start with the caveat that I don't think that there is one um, definitive definition of any of these particular terms. As I understand them, a political prisoner is somebody whose um, incarceration uh, was motivated by their um, something involving their, their political activities, right? Um, in some way, that can be defined rather broadly to include uh, panthers that have been framed up, you know, old black panthers that were framed up, or protesters that have been, um, you know, challenging, say, the Dakota Access Pipeline, who were then, uh, you know, hit with penalties to keep them off the front lines and send a message to others. Um, Politicized prisoners will be what I would think of as individuals who were incarcerated um, because of a criminal offense they committed and became aware of the power relationships that you know set up certain people and certain communities 
for this mode of state control. So their conviction and incarceration itself is not related to their personal political activities, but while incarcerated, they have essentially become incarcerated activists or to use um, language from the United Nations, human rights defenders while inside of the prison. Um, obviously, the fact of somebody being incarcerated itself often is uh, inseparable from the politics around incarceration, mm -hmm. but that's kind of how I would draw those lines. I understand some people, um, you know, if uh, in making their own political points have referred to all prisoners as political prisoners, but we make I would make those distinctions just based on, you know, what led one into, uh, you know, prison, the forces motivating that, um, and also just to kind of delineate um, how people came to political consciousness, if it was before their incarceration or, you know, after their incarceration, as it were. Now, how I would distinguish them from other prisoners, which I think back in the day were oftentimes referred to as social prisoners, is really probably has to do with kind of the development of their own political consciousness. But understanding these are very broad, you know, terms that we're using right now. Um, and when we say that we're influenced by the political and political politicized prisoners in Pennsylvania, we're speaking to a very specific um, history and groups of individuals, um, you know, where probably the most prominent among them was our first client, Russell Maroon Schultz, and many of the organizations that he founded while incarcerated um, and with ties to the outside that have been involved in trying to organize those that are most impacted to you know, find their political voice and political power um, and change this situation. So it's essentially their leadership that we are um, you know, trying to take our lead from but, you know, it is um, a political consciousness that is, you know, very inclusive of providing um, in, an analysis that would serve, you know, everybody. It's not exclusive in terms of its focus on the political, politicized prisoners, but really looking at, you know, the class and race and gendered politics of incarceration and trying to think up uh, and organize around mass strategies to, um, you know, to, to push back against that. Mm -hmm. That Well, that uh, was really helpful, and I appreciate you uh, going in depth um, with, with those descriptions and definitions there. Um, I wanted to ask you another question. Uh, I know from reading your website uh, that you focus on a handful of docket areas, uh, including solitary confinement, political rights, health and environmental rights, and release from prison. Um, and I wanted to know why why these areas? Why are these the areas of the law that your organization has chosen to focus on? Um, sure, I'd say there's probably two general responses to that. One is that they organically developed out of relationships that I had or you know have developed since the abolitionist law center um, was founded. So when I went to law school, that was inspired by working in t with the Human Rights Coalition as a volunteer activist and investigator into conditions in the prison system. And if you're investigating human rights violations in any prison system in this country, it's going to lead you straight to the hole, to solitary confinement, what they call Pennsylvania restricted housing units. There's an endless and dizzying array of euphemisms and acronyms to describe it, but it all means, you know, the same thing, locking somebody in a cell with themselves um, 23 to 24 hours, 22 hours sometimes, and it's been widely recognized that when this is prolonged, it, uh, it is a form of state torture. So there's the organic relationship aspect to it, and when it comes to political rights, <clears throat> I can tell you know, similar stories about how our first lawsuit was a, a censorship, or our, our first lawsuit in that docket was a case challenging censorship, and it happened to be a, um, with somebody who's now our organizing director, Robert Salim Holbrook, um, who was sentenced to life without parole as a juvenile, but has been resentenced and released. When I was getting my bar card, 
you know, he was telling me about problems he was having at the institution he was at with the mail room, just engaging in um, censorship of political literature, literature that's critical of the prison system, racism within the criminal legal system. And so there was that organic connection, and he had already drafted a lawsuit. So, you know, that's kind of how we got into that. And with every single uh, case, you know, we I could tell that sort of story. But it's not simply that... And we happen to know people and make these connections uh, in a in a in a happenstance manner. We're trying to strategically target those um, aspects of the system that we think are are pillars mm-hmm. and the weakening of which will um, have you know some some broad ramifications and some important um, effects to undermine not just the ability of the state to inflict violence, but also the ideologies that are embedded in things like solitary confinement and life without parole. I mean, those are which we refer to as death by incarceration. Um, and, you know, again, following the lead of people from the inside who refer to it as that. Those types of punishments, you know, throwing somebody in a concrete and steel bathroom for 23 and 24 hours a day for months, years, and even decades on end, Right, death by incarceration, saying to an 18-year-old, a 21-year-old, even a 35-year-old, so that you must be banished from society forever with no chance of redemption or return or restoration to your community. I mean, these are the types of punishments that are permanent in nature and that send a message that some people are disposable and they're not worthy of humanity. So in pushing back against those punishments, we are trying to attack the foundations of, you know, this system of permanent exclusion and punishment, which stigmatizes and disenfranchises entire communities, um, and, you know, telling a different story that um, not only is this, it's not simply that these types of punishments are excessive, it's just that they're fundamentally morally wrong Mm -hmm. and need to be reversed. So, while we are, of course, working for any type of immediate relief or justice that we can get for any individual clients or group of clients, get them out of the hole, um, trying to get them out of prison. We're trying to do it in a context that is um, you know, going after some of the more significant structural aspects of the system of state violence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes complete sense. Um, so following up on that, can you talk a little bit about the impact that you've had and, and what you're striving for in Pennsylvania specifically? And, and if you could talk about some of the folks or cases that you've worked on uh, and what you've been able to accomplish there, I, I think that would be great. Oh, sure. Where to start? Um, well, let's start with the solitary confinement cases. The first case we brought um, was, I was still a law student, so I was just studying for the bar. Um we brought it for Russell Maroon Schultz. Maroon is a beloved Black Panther, Black Liberation Army member, and longtime organizer. Before his incarceration and during his incarceration, he earned the moniker Maroon um, as an homage to the societies of escaped slaves, um, escaped Africans, I should say, and others who uh, joined and formed um, what were known as maroon communities throughout the Americans, uh, Americas in opposition to the Slave Society. He earned that name by twice escaping his captors, um, twice escaping from prison, um, obviously recaptured, including in 1980 was the last time. And, you know, after spending some time in the hole, he was released into the general population in 1982, and he decided he was going to take a different approach to political struggle, um, and he began trying to, you know, do above-board organizing with the Prison Lifers Association. But he was so successful as a leader that, and there was so much enthusiasm from the lifer population uh, at SCI Pittsburgh, you know, more than 100 people showing up to meetings all of a sudden, um, getting excited mm-hmm. about strategies to get their loved ones and family members involved in pushing back against life without parole, that the administration, uh, you know, freaked out and threw him in solitary confinement in the, around the spring of 1983. And he stayed there until 2014. 
there was a brief period he was in the Fed, so 19 months, he was in general population there. But by the time I met Maroon in 2007, 2008, he was at State Correctional Institution Green, been there over a decade. He was in his 60s. Um, several years later, uh, getting through law school, we brought a case that was done in coordination with a you know, grassroots uh, movement that was led by his family, Teresa Russell, uh, Sharon and you know other supporters from New York, Philadelphia, and really around the country. And in this combination of legal pressure and you know public and press pressure, they released him before we even got a court order. Right, so they moved to let him out. I'm trying to think how old he was at the time. He might have been 70 by the time they released him, or 69 years old. But he's been hmm. out of solitary confinement now for the last four years. Um, and I remember speaking with plenty of people about this case, including social justice lawyers, um, while I was a law student and trying to get interest and just being told, um, fairly being told, that that's going to be a damn hard case. This is an individual who's, um, even though it was 1970, uh, he, he was convicted for the homicide of a police officer, and he escaped from prison twice. And these were you know, not just, uh, these were very, um, let's say, well thought out and planned escapes. Some, one involving smuggling weapons to the prison, another involving him being on the run for 27 days. The type of thing that the state doesn't forget or forgive very easily, and the type of facts that even as Mr. Schultz has become an elder, um, you know, courts can also be quite unforgiving on. But, um, we were um, able, and I say we, speaking broadly of the movement, to um, really highlight that he's being tortured and to put the pressure on the Department of Corrections to not back down until he was released. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, since that case, we've had, and we ended up forcing their hand to a, a settlement for $99,000 you know, they paid so that they could avoid going to trial. Um, the follow-up case we did was for Arthur Johnson, uh, known as Chet Oweo. He was in for 36 years. In that case, we had a preliminary injunction issue in our favor, which means the court gave emergency relief for Mr. Johnson to be put into a transition program of 90 days and released to the general population, which he was in early 2017. Um, he'd been in for 37 years. By the time he was released, he was a long-time you know, friend of Maroon and other black liberation movement activists um, while incarcerated, certainly would be um, one of those politicized prisoners that we discussed earlier. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time in the country that a court had ordered somebody released from long-term solitary confinement from like decades of solitary confinement. There have been some other cases in which injunctions have issued for you know, individuals who have mental health diagnoses or issues, right? Um, but this was the first one saying that even if somebody's not, you know, suffering from a diagnosed psychiatric condition, these uh, conditions of isolation are so painful and they create mm-hmm. so much risk of further deterioration that there's no arbitrary threshold of mental illness. Somebody has to, you know, uh, attain before they become unconstitutional. Um, and we've had other, you know, success in solitary confinement, getting the Allegheny County Jail here to agree to stop putting pregnant women in solitary confinement, which they were doing pretty rampantly. Um, the county jail here is a particular mess and uh, just travesty, but, you know, they were doing it over, um, offenses like somebody had too many shoes, you're not allowed to have too much property, Mm -hmm. or... Mm-hmm. Or just for investigative reasons, right? Um, and, uh, you know, we filed a lawsuit and they backed down right away. We did that with the ACLU mm-hmm. and changed their policy. And currently we have ongoing litigation around uh, solitary confinement for the men. I say just the men because there are no women, but the men on death row in Pennsylvania. There's still about 140, 150 
it seems like one or two, you know, uh, leave the row every month. Pennsylvania doesn't really execute people. There have been three executions in the modern era since they rewrote the death penalty statutes, and all of those three were um, what are known as volunteers. They gave up their appeals. Um, everybody who has not given up their appeal, though, is either still fighting or has had their sentence vacated. Pennsylvania seems to be incapable of imposing the death penalty um, in accord with the Constitution. So what that means is we have clients who have been on the row 20, 25, 30 years and longer while appeals you know, play out endlessly through the courts. So we filed a lawsuit with the ACLU National Prison Project, ACLU Pennsylvania, the uh, Kairos, Kairos Rudofsky Feinberg firm, um, and um, we are seeking to end you know, solitary confinement, isolation of death sentenced prisoners. Some, uh, and so the data is slowly, not in direct response, but probably in an indirect response as part of the changing um, understanding in the public, right, and in the press about mm -hmm. solitary confinement. The Department of Corrections has been um, making steps to roll back its use to try out a number of alternative. Uh, disciplinary measures um, to have more diversionary units. This was in relationship to a, a suit that was not brought by us, but around solitary confinement of the mentally ill and the Justice Department investigation. So our efforts have been uh, of a piece with those others to push back on solitary confinement, um, which is having some effects, but, you know, we need to keep the pressure on and, you know, not give these people a pass because the second that um, the scrutiny goes away, they will immediately begin backsliding to their old ways. That's what the prison systems mm -hmm. do. Mm -hmm. um, another case that we think has some great significance for people uh, beyond Pennsylvania is the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal seeking his hepatitis C treatment. And... Um, up until 1989, hepatitis C hadn't been discovered. After it was discovered, it, the treatment regimens that were in place were dangerous. The side effects were quite severe. It would be a 48-week um, process, and oftentimes there could be symptoms like psychiatric morbidity, flu-like symptoms, and others that were so severe often that treatment couldn't be finished. And the treatment wasn't terribly effective. You know, sometimes less than 50% um, would be cured, uh, mm. sometimes a little bit more, you know, depending. So in 2011 through 2013, these new direct-acting antiviral medications, as they're known, uh, were approved by the FDA for treating hepatitis C. 8 to 12 weeks, maybe 24 weeks for certain cases, but generally 8 to 12-week treatment period. You take a pill every day. Side effects are minimal, uh, definitely marginal compared to the former treatment regimen, and cure rates were often over 95%. Wow. So, obviously, in capitalist America, Big Pharma is going to patent that and literally hold people's health and their lives hostage, and that's what they did. They were charging about a thousand bucks a pill, could be eighty to a hundred thousand dollars for a course of treatment. Um, so prison officials being who they are in dealing with budgetary issues combined with um, a real culture of dehumanization that is, um, yeah, I mean, it's present throughout all of the institutions, but you also see it especially pronounced in ugly ways in the medical care, um, such that it is that happens in prison. Uh, I think part of the reason they weren't providing treatment or making moves to get these new medications for people is because they simply didn't think they deserved it. But yeah. there's also a very real uh, fiscal issue because rates of hepatitis C in jails and prisons in this country are literally at epidemic levels. They're vastly in excess of the general population. I mean, it's hard to really pin down numbers. I've seen statistics saying, you know, 10, 20 in some institutions or jurisdictions, more than 10 or 20% have hepatitis C or might have hepatitis C, mm -hmm. um, which is extraordinary. In Pennsylvania, in the Abu Jamal case, 
they shared that there were over 5,400 thereabouts who had chronic hepatitis C, which means that they went from just possessing the antibody to having an active infection. Um, so, you know, they're at risk for further disease progression, development of liver cancer, more advanced fibrosis, and then cirrhosis, et cetera. So Pennsylvania, and not just Pennsylvania, pretty much every jurisdiction, um, has been going through a prolonged process of um, delaying treatment. Initially, they terminated their hep C protocol in 2013 in December, which was the right thing to do, to terminate the old protocol that's obsolete, but they didn't implement a new one, allowing for treatment with direct-acting antivirals for 23 months. Um, And it's just not that hard to to do that. It shouldn't take 23 months. Um, If there was a will, then you you figure out the treatment uh, protocol that's going to be followed, and and you do it. Um, But, you know, the longer they wait, the more likely prices will drop. Um, So they went through a system of rationing, which they still have in place, in which they denied treatment until... Um, people have developed cirrhosis already, so it's they literally wait for permanent organ damage, yeah. major yeah. organ in the body mm-hmm. with potential effects throughout the circulatory system, the um, you know kidneys. Uh, I mean, I could go on and on about uh, potential comorbidities, as they're called. In any event, um, you know, Mumia became quite sick in 2015. He himself had some comorbidities uh, that potentially were related to his hepatitis C. Um, You know, they hadn't even been following up with him since it was discovered he had hepatitis C in 2012. He'd probably been carrying it since the 80s. The best theory we have is the night he was shot, the night he was arrested and shot by a police officer is potentially when he, um, you know, became he had hepatitis C because mm-hmm. blood transfusions back then weren't screened for it. They didn't know what it was. In any mm-hmm. event, the DOC continually told him in the courts, in so many words, he's not sick enough, and we're not going to treat until he has hepatitis or until he has cirrhosis. And in an early version of the case, you know, in our 2015 hearing in December, the head of clinical services, Dr. Paul Noel actually testified their policy was not to treat people until they had cirrhosis, which is inflammation mm-hmm. and scarring of the liver throughout the entire architecture of the liver. Um, so it's permanent liver damage, decrease of liver function, et cetera. Um, but so they're all basically waiting for people to die. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I'm going to get to that because okay. we have evidence of that too. Wow. And they said they would wait for huh. esophageal varices to develop. Now, esophageal varices are caused by portal hypertension, so there's problems with blood flow, it's uh, related to the hepatitis C, it's caused by that, and once you develop varices um, in your esophagus or in your stomach from this, then you're at risk of those varices hemorrhaging eventually. And we have obtained um, official Department of Corrections uh, death registries listing causes of death um, for, I mean, a number of years going back to the year 2000, but in 2015 and 16, for instance, I think there were approximately 40 individuals whose cause of death was hepatitis C, liver cancer, end-stage liver disease, or some type of hemorrhaging that we have knowledge was caused by ruptured varices. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody who had liver cancer, end-stage liver disease, um, had untreated hepatitis C, mm-hmm. right? But we do know that hepatitis C is the leading cause of mm-hmm. liver cancer and end-stage liver disease. It doesn't mean that all of these people weren't treated. You know, we have heard instances of people were treated and it was too late and it didn't work, but it's pretty safe to assume that most of them weren't. And we do know some of the specific cases, you know, and they weren't treated. Um, and the treatment might not have been affected, but we do have a pretty compelling prima facie case that they're literally watching people die. And we actually just brought a suit for somebody a couple months ago whose uh, family member had passed, just not being treated, being ignored, and he 
died of internal bleeding, which was predictable, predicted, well-known. It's not a mystery mm-hmm. medically. They just didn't have a protocol, and they weren't treating people. They're just watching people die. And that's still happening, you know, to this day, um, based on reports that we're getting. So in January 2017, the court ordered the prison to give Mumia the new direct-acting antiviral medications. That was the first order in the country requiring the treatment with these particular medications. Um, failure to do such was deemed an Eighth Amendment violation. And, you know, Mumia, then there's a brief flurry of they're trying to appeal it. They failed. And he began treatment in April 2017 and has completed treatment and he's now cured. Um, the case has had positive uh, ramifications in other jurisdictions like Missouri, the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. There's class action lawsuits in those courts that have, you know, cited the opinion we got in Abu Jamal, um, you know, chapter and verse as to why treatment with the direct acting antivirals for anybody that has hepatitis C is standard of care and, um, you know, so on. So we have a, you know, a robust hepatitis C docket where we're, you know, seeking treatment for people and tracking conditions and, um, you know, bringing cases on behalf of those who have died while in prison. Um, and then real briefly with another docket area that's been, uh, increasingly a focus of ours, we are challenging what we call death by incarceration, laying a life without parole sentences in a variety of ways. Um, and one of those, there's limits to what you can do in the courts under the case law, but we're trying to expand the ruling of Miller v. Alabama, which held that um, juveniles, those who are younger than 18, can't be sentenced to mandatory life without parole. We brought cases on behalf of 18-year-olds, saying that they had the same developmental characteristics that the U.S. Supreme Court recognized render life without parole sentences unconstitutional. And recently we got the Intermediate Appellate Court, the PA Superior Court, to agree to form en banc, which means the whole court, at least nine judges or more, to listen to our argument and consider overruling some of the past cases that prohibited those who were 18 or older from bringing such a claim. So this is um, a case we're excited about. We just filed a major brief yesterday. We had an amicus from the Juvenile Law Center and Defenders Association of Philadelphia and others, and we're um, cautiously optimistic that by pushing this um, on this arbitrary line of 18, and whether it's just allowing 18-year-olds to also bring the claims, or even 18 up to 21-year-olds, this can have uh, effects beyond Avis Lee's case, which is the woman we represent. She's been in 38 years because she watched her brother commit an armed robbery that turned into a homicide when the person tried to defend himself and uh, and got shot in the process. Um, she was 18 years old and she flagged down a bus so they could uh, get help for the man who was you know, shot. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's never going to get out of prison unless the sentence gets overturned. But there's hundreds or more in her circumstance, well over 1,000 or 2,000 who are just in this 18 to 21 um, range in Pennsylvania. And it's, again, of a piece of other cases and efforts that are going on across the country. And you know, by chipping away at where these sentences are the least justifiable. You know, cases like this where there's felony murder and no intent to kill, where the offenders are very young and have a lot of mitigating evidence about their uh, about childhood and adolescent trauma that they were subjected to, um, that this can, uh, you know, undercut the rationale for, you know, these sentences in any instance, you know, leading to people getting released from prison and like we've seen with the juvenile lifers who have come home in Pennsylvania already, becoming leaders in our movements, um, you know, in uh, advocating for ending life without parole for everybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm having a tough time listening um, to all of this, and I'm pretty sure Brian is uh, as well. And uh uh, much of what you're saying hits really close to home for me because I have two sons uh, serving life uh, in prison without the possibility of parole. Um, and uh, listening to the 
to you describe um, the struggles with um, getting medical treatment uh, is something that, you know, um, that I've had to deal with um, and not just with them, but with other people that uh, that I know that are in prison. And it's just it's really, really difficult. So um, I appreciate, you know, you being so thorough in terms of your description and um, and what you're doing uh, as well, because I think it's uh, really important work. And I just wanted to ask, you know, Brian has um, another more well thought out question, but, um, you know, as an abolitionist lawyer, you know, and I, I'd like you to define what you think what what that means for you, you know, what it means to be an abolitionist lawyer uh, doing this kind of, you know, doing this work, which is um, difficult, it's time consuming, it's um, drawn out uh, over many, many years. And, you know, there's obviously no guarantees, but, you know, how do you see, um, how do you see the work that you're doing within that abolitionist framework? Well, that's a, a good question and one that I don't really have a, a canned answer for, right? So, um, because when we talk about abolition, we're gesturing towards something that, you know, that is not but which should be. And when you're asking mm -hmm. what the future should look like, a future worth living for, uh, these are the broadest possible horizons and some of the most open-ended possible questions but for me it means um it means a lot of things and some of them i can try to reduce to some articulable principles so it's not uh sufficient by a long shot to oppose institutions like the prison system or um or the or the states more broadly uh in the abstract or to uh, have some type of, you know, moral um, objection to oppression and you bear witness to it. Um, what's required at a minimum is to take action to try to bring it to a stop. Under So that means mm -hmm. fundamentally for those of us who, like myself, don't come from a community or a background where I got family members being sent into prison or that's not happening from the community I came from. That means acting in you know, radical solidarity with those who are most impacted and recognizing their leadership and working with them to you know, find out uh, how the machine is you know, clamping its teeth down on them and to try to you know, bring that to a stop in individual instances and in kind of systemic ways. And I, I just want to kind of go back and emphasize that means radical solidarity with the people we're working with, you know, then it's sort of mm -hmm. uh, a relationship of um, equality and, you know, just kind of mutual collaboration. It is not, uh, and, and that's at least for those who are familiar with the legal profession and all of its pathologies and deficiencies, um, you know, lawyers have, um, are, are more often than not elitist, condescending, uh, they do things for people, um, it's all sorts of problematic um, conduct, you know, and attitudes can go into that. So that's something we fight against as abolitionist lawyers. Um, a term our board member, Jules Lobel, board president, and who was the lead counsel in the Pelican Bay solitary confinement litigation, a term she's been, um, I've heard him use lately, is participatory litigation. Right, that's mm -hmm. how he defines, you know, his own idea of working with clients. Um, when it comes to abolitionist work, that means if you're working with those who are being most impacted, a lot of your work is going to be uh, harm reduction. In fact, maybe most or all of it. Um, you know, and that's okay. There's not uh, any type of tactic. There's no specific tactic or strategy or set of tactics and strategies that is going to you know, deliver some type of heroic world historical death knell system of oppression. You know, it's a historical process that involves um, weakening that which we are opposed to in building up our own 
um, alternative movements, institutions, building the strength of uh, ourselves um, in trying to envision that other world. Um, in terms of, you know, it being tedious and time-consuming and uphill, that's uh, anything worth doing, you know, in a world that's as... Yeah. Um, uh, can I swear on this program? Um, in the world that's okay, as messed up <laughs> as this one, as fucked up as this world is, like every single day beyond belief, if you're going to be committed to living in this world with other people and, you know, trying to, um, at a minimum, make it less harmful then uh, that involves, uh, you know, being serious and yeah. being prepared to think long-term and what little steps we can do now to advance in in the right direction. Um, but it also means just more, um, you know, kind of to bring it back to the politics of abolition, is that how we fight for what can be characterized as reforms or how we engage in harm reduction, how we interface with institutions like the court and the prisons. Um, it needs to be strategic, and it, we need to be mindful that we're not reinforcing the systems that we um, find illegitimate and want to delegitimize, undermine, and uh, abolish, right, and replace with things that are nurturing of, you know, the health of people and communities. So a concrete example there is in life without parole uh, struggles. Um, you will never find anybody in the abolitionist law center arguing to a court or to members of the media or anywhere else that because our client Avis Lee didn't have any intent to kill, um, this penalty is... We won't be arguing that that argument. We can argue that because she didn't have an intent to kill, life without parole should be um, off the table, right? But you won't mm -hmm. find us arguing that for those other cases that are different, it's a justifiable punishment. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. some of this can be quite nuanced in the court, and the court doesn't necessarily... Uh, you know, won't get into this. But we have legal arguments now after the decisions of Roper, Graham, Miller, Montgomery that have called into question the most severe punishments, including life without parole when imposed on juveniles. So we have legal arguments to apply those to 18-year-olds, maybe 18 to 21, um, to those who are still developing neurologically, um, and maybe to other categories of defendants the Supreme Court's recognized have diminished culpability, like those who did not have an intent to kill. But that does not mean that in making our argument for those clients, we are going to um, counterpose them to individuals who don't fit within kind of what would be the next application of this line of precedent mm -hmm. to imply that the sentence is okay if somebody's okay. 23 years old and they pull the trigger, right? Um, so... It is a theme which I'm sure a lot of you have heard before about fighting for reforms in a non-reformist manner. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, for those that follow the least, uh, the death penalty struggles around this country, you know that oftentimes the death penalty abolitionists will be the most fervent supporters of life without parole. Yes. But, yep. you know, having come from an activist background before I was a lawyer where the people were working most closely with are so-called lifers serving sentences of death by incarceration. That's just nothing that we can hold out as um, is desirable, right? Yeah. So kind of thinking through how do you uh, fight for reforms, for immediate relief, for harm reduction, and working with those on the front lines in a way that um, still delegitimizes the institution. I think that's mm. just one of the most fundamental fulcrums that differentiates, uh, you know, liberal and radical approaches, not just in the prison system, but, you know, just across the, you know, whole field of political struggle. Mm-hmm. 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 Oh, wow. I really appreciate that. That was, uh, that was really good. I really appreciate that. Um, and not to backtrack or, or like, uh, change the subject too much, but I'm, I'm just still thinking about what you were saying about healthcare, uh, in the prisons. And I just, you know, for years, uh, of writing about, um, about incarceration, I mean, anybody 
you know, if you have access to PACER, the federal court database, just search, you know, the name of one of the privatized healthcare companies, Advanced Correctional Healthcare, Horizon, Armor Correctional, and nine out of 10 of the lawsuits in there will be about this issue of waiting for uh, someone to be basically on the verge of death before making sort of any decision to treat or do anything about it. It is so unbelievably pervasive. Um, I just wanted to point that out because for me, you know, in particular, it's been like a, you know, a big motivator in, in my own work uh, as just one of the most appalling features of this system. Um, so yeah. I just wanted to no, thank absolutely. you. Absolutely. And it's, and it's around things big or small. I mean, we talk about this hepatitis, yeah. when I was talking about the hepatitis C issue, um, it's not that it's not evil, that they're just like watching people die, but it's also not surprising given the magnitude of people with hepatitis C, the costs involved, mm-hmm. and really the politics of the legislature and the executive branch who oversee, at least theoretically, these institutions and make budget outlays. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, they don't want a social safety net. Um, most of the politicians in this country don't really care for it. They're mm-hmm. not actively attacking it. They're not doing much to defend it for those who aren't incarcerated. But that's not that surprising. But when you are um, in doing this work in, in any capacity, whether it's as a family member, an advocate, an activist, a lawyer, combination of these things, for some period of time, you encounter instance after instance of prison medical staff refusing care, not because of some rational calculus of a bureaucrat in central office, but because of just a total, just mean-spirited denial of the humanity of the person Mm -hmm. in front of them. I've oftentimes uh, referred to, it's not just the medical care, but, um, you know, throughout these institutions, if we could give the Department of Corrections, to speak for Pennsylvania, uh, a psychiatric diagnosis. I mean, they probably have several of them, given how pathological these institutions are. But one, which, you know, might be a questionable diagnosis itself, is there seems to be a certain variant of oppositional defiant disorder, which is if the person who's incarcerated wants something, the initial response is to not want to give it to them and to look at it with suspicion. And, you know, I can think of just the opposite examples where some different person doesn't want that and they want to give it to them, whether it's, you know, having a single cell or not having a single cell, um, uh, you know, medical tests, et cetera. But it's the exercise of agency itself that is deemed threatening. And that has very deep roots within slaveholders republic, right? And those who are deemed captive and less than human, just exercising any independent agency, being able to be, you know, critical thinkers, um, uh, or to, you know, heaven forbid, act with like anybody else, yeah. alone like an organized group in their own interest, scares the hell out of these people that, um, you know, are holding them captive. And it's, uh, you, so you just see the instances, I mean, I've seen multiple instances the last year of clients having their wheelchairs taken yep. by prison staff. And, you know, a woman losing 20 pounds because she can't really make it to the dining hall anymore, like once out of three days, and um, to just, you know, implying that she's faking her conditions, even though they've been documented in her medical records for well over a decade within the Department of Corrections. Um, yep. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I I have way too many examples, and you know, Same. It, I, I can't even. Uh, I'm sitting here, like honestly, fighting back tears because it's just it, it's so close to home, and it's infuriating um, to hear that you know it, you're the the facilities, but these people, um, and they are people who are making these decisions on a daily yeah. basis, are actively you know, um, denying people basic, very basic care. Um, and it could be something as minor as, you know, um, you know, a minor toothache, uh, for example, that gets, you know, neglected, uh, for months on end. And then it gets to the point where, you know, the tooth has to be pulled. Um, and (laughs) it's, you know, that kind of um, 
just fucked up behavior um, is part of what has me on the verge of tears right now, um, to be honest. Uh, But, you know, I'm going to shut up and um, (laughs) I really am. I'm going to shut up because I I enjoyed listening to what you have have to say, even if it is difficult to hear. But I think it's um, extremely valuable um, for our audience to um, understand you know, from the perspective of, you know, someone who is steeped in the law, um, Mm -hmm. but has also had, you know, an activist background, how you're combining these two things and fighting, um, fighting for people um, who don't really have that many people who are fighting for them um, and, and can have an impact uh on their lives and the lives of other people so i appreciate that um we're gonna shift gears here um because we're coming up on time Mm -hmm. but um i I know that you know we have a final question that we'd like to ask and this is probably um we should have probably given a little more time to this uh question but um uh, brian do you want to go ahead and ask um yeah sure um so basically, uh, you know, I, I, I want to ask you about your thoughts on um, the election of Larry Krasner uh, to district attorney uh, okay. and sort of get your your thoughts, you know, as an abolitionist lawyer about, uh, you know, the country's most progressive DA, as many are calling him. Um, and just as a little background to this question, uh, you know, we have a DA race up here in Cumberland County in Maine, uh, here in Portland. Um, and the reformist wave has definitely arrived here. There is, uh, I was just at a candidate forum uh, at the beginning of this week, and the three Democrats who are running for the office have got the rhetoric down. Um, it's all about compassion and uh-huh. treatment and diversion, and, and I'm sure you know uh, exactly what I'm talking about. Um, but at the same time, you know, when uh, the audience was asking questions and they were sort of getting down to brass tacks, um, you know, and they were asking about, uh, you know, just how far the prosecutor was going to be willing to go to avoid incarceration. It came to a point where, and I'm paraphrasing, but one of the candidates was essentially like, well, you know, at the end of the day, we're prosecutors. uh, And, you know, this is part of our job uh, is to decide when it's appropriate to incarcerate people. uh, And it's an integral part of the job. And so I'm wondering um, I don't know how neatly I'm going to be able to phrase this question, but but I guess like a, a lot of focus has been put on um, electing better prosecutors. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't, you know, a lot of prosecutors are terrible, but as an abolitionist, like what are, you know, what are your thoughts on this? Um, and, you know, how far does, is it really able to take us in terms of like a larger strategy and vision uh, for the justice system? Um. Yeah, very important subject. So, where to start? Um, you know, any particular election or particular public official uh, always exists within certain parameters of that institution as it has existed mm-hmm. and as it is inscribed by law and within the political field it operates in. So, um, it's kind of a general enough truism, but just to point out that there's no magic bullet, like I said earlier, about any tactic or strategy, including electing officials, um, even if it's somebody who's promising to do everything that you want. It's just part of a thorough process of mm-hmm. um, movement building. I think it is overdue in this country that there is more of an engagement from the left in fighting for actually holding power, and that is... Um, occurring, as we're seeing in primaries uh, that are happening, you know, this month, as we saw in elections last year, and, you know, Trump is also helping to accelerate that, but he's also a symptom of what is the growing recognition of the illegitimacy of the U.S. neoliberal prison states to try to sum up a lot of factors in a in a few words. Um, fighting for the district attorney's races is uh, incredibly important that these things have been, uh, these races have been politicized. Um, it is really the, maybe the ideal electoral office 
uh, to be having a battle over mm-hmm. um, what should be the role of uh, police and prisons, you know, prosecution, and, you know, how we are uh, deal with harm as communities and societies when it happens, but also what are the limits on state violence that we will tolerate or allow to be imposed or fight back against. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you talked about how they all seem to have the rhetoric down. Yeah, we've seen this again and again. I mean, when Krasner began his campaign in Philadelphia, um, it, after several weeks, led to one of the more clever um op-ed titles that I'd, I'd seen, which was uh, the Philadelphia District Attorney's race, like the Indianapolis 500, keeps turning to the left. So mm-hmm. Krasner was just hammering on the current district attorney and the status quo and the way it's been run for decades, and then everybody else, you know, was scrambling to catch up, and they've always supported, you know, bail reform or this, that, but, you know, they didn't have integrity because most right. of them were prosecutors. They had their own... Uh, just like well-publicized, uh, you know, links to the status quo or to the establishment. You know, Krasner's different in certain ways, which I'll return to. But, you know, fundamentally, it is an office of criminal prosecution. So trying to have a, a decarcerate DA, as Krasner has been referred to, is important. But, you know, you're not uh, getting at the fundamental um role of the criminal prosecution system, which is to stigmatize and to punish. It is to Mm -hmm. brand people and it is to hurt them. And this is something I was thinking about when we were just talking about the healthcare issues. When you create institutions whose function, its primary function, its ultimate function is to hurt other people, then the type of routine inhumanity uh, that seems beyond the pale, um, you know, it becomes norm, right? So you're not going to get away from that. You're not going to undo that by having the right district attorney in office. But it's part of political struggle and it's part of delegitimizing the status quo and it's part of moving towards um, less harmful alternatives, getting people out of prison, not having them come into prison in the first place. So Krasner... My read on him is that his election is most important for what it says about the forces that mobilized to get him into power. Philadelphia's grassroots community, um, whether they define themselves liberal, progressive, radical, or none of these things in particular, but have some interest in the operation of that office and how politics plays out in their city, they mobilized into a very impressive coalitional political formation, the Coalition for a Just DA, and they made their demands felt, and they built a majoritarian constituency that was able to go out and not just ensure that their views were represented whenever people cast their ballots, but that they mm-hmm. won by a landslide. Right. Um, in a, uh, and not just against the Republican, but in the primary, which was the real race in Philadelphia. It's basically a one-party city. Krasner had about 36 or 38%, and the next person had 18%, and this is in a field of seven candidates. So that signifies that if there's proper organization, communication strategy, and importantly, people on the ground knocking on doors, Mm -hmm. right, that there is much that can be done in terms of um, pushing back against the status quo and winning significant victories. Now, since Krasner has been in office, he has followed through on a lot of what he has said he is going to do. It's also, you know, the case that within four or five months, you can only do so much so fast. But they've taken steps to roll back cash bail. They're not prosecuting marijuana offenses. The offers that they're giving to juvenile lifers are significantly lower. I mean, you've seen them drop 16, 20 years in certain cases, you know, so people can have a chance to to be released and return home now. Um, you know, they've taken death penalty off the table in certain instances. And uh, there was this memo that was circulating, I'm sure you both saw it, that was, you know, Krasner calling on prosecutors mm-hmm. not to 
uh, to, to make recommendations below the sentencing guidelines mm-hmm. for the least serious, for the nonviolent offenses, right? There's also been pushback from some judges who haven't approved some of the juvenile lifer offers, um, you know, seeing them as too lenient. There's been pushback from certain individuals who have lost loved ones to, to violence, you know, certain victims saying they want more of a punitive approach. So, you know, the office and how far it moves in uh, trying to establish a, a new paradigm or less harmful, you know, sets of policies and practices is something that is in play right now. It's in uh, struggle and it is a mistake to just, you know, sit on the sidelines and, you know, hope that Larry does the right thing in this or that instance. People need to organize mm-hmm. in order to show what the will of the public is. And so that's something that just constantly needs to be uh, reiterated in the United States where politics is largely like most things in the country viewed as a spectator sport you watch on television is that just because somebody is holding office and has this power um, and, you know, they're saying things you want that's maybe sound better, maybe they're putting into practice some of these, you don't sit back and let them do what they got to do. That's exactly the time where it's even more important to become organized, to push further, and to take whatever gains and whatever spaces that are opened up and to advance those. You know, I will also say this about Krasner, though, is that his politics are fundamentally liberal in that his critique of the system doesn't go too deep historically or into the functions of criminal prosecution and incarceration. He's had some language that is quite troubling about um, certain offenders, you know, being uh, deserving of, right. um, you know, really ex- long sentences or being mm-hmm. quite, uh, I mean, he'll, he'll kind of split violent offenders and say, you know, some of them have these mitigating circumstances. I can't remember the exact quotes, you know, and he'll say some of them are right. um, fundamentally evil, you know, as a defense attorney. I saw that. And that sort of rhetoric is not helpful for us. And we need to push back against that. And it's, um, you know, Larry is probably wanting to show that he can be a prosecutor because he never has been. And so he's insecure about that. Um, You know, he also made a um, bad decision in Mumia's recent appeal in you know, holding to the position of his predecessor, you know, much to the satisfaction of the Fraternal Order of Police that they don't find that former District Attorney Ron Castile uh, played a, a role in his prosecution sufficient to have required him to recuse himself when he was a Supreme Court justice, right? So mm-hmm. he is basically citing the FOP to deny reinstatement of Mumia's appellate rights. But this is something that I know I've been saying to people and people in the movements in Philadelphia have been saying to themselves is that they will support Krasner so long as he's pushing policies and practices that are in line with what his movements towards decarceration, right, uh, want. But to the extent that he's not going far enough or he's going the other direction, you know, push back. Push back on it hard, right? So, um, you know, Larry's a liberal. He's a progressive um, to the extent that that term can be, has any definition that people can speak to or agree on. I've never right. been able to really pin it down. It's a little fuzzy. But um, but he has run to the left mm-hmm. and embraced grassroots movements, which has some pretty significant implications, um, you know, across the political field. And we're seeing some of this in Allegheny County here in Pittsburgh, where I'm at with some of the, you know, the primary races in the Democratic Party. And some of these are also playing... Uh, across Pennsylvania, too. So to the extent that it is also, you know, not just signifying a, a rollback or a change of course in many of the policies and practices of the DA's office, you know, um, which has already, by the way, led to a 9% reduction in Philly's jail population just in the first four months of the year alone. Mm-hmm. But um, it's also part of important politicization and political activity and activation of um, grassroots organizations and members of the public who can hopefully see that if Donald Trump can become the president, then obviously we don't need professional politicians. It's amateur hours, so everybody should be stepping up and getting involved. And um, if that happens, 
then you can see more significant changes and deeper structural levels because it can reshape what people have to run on in terms of their platform and how they have to carry it through when they get into office, period. Because at the end of the day, the prosecutor is a servant of you know, the legislature. They have immense discretion, right. but they don't have the discretion to rewrite laws right. and to rewrite the sentencing code. Yeah. I want to thank you um, for coming on the show today. And uh, before we let you go, we have, you know, one final question um, here. And it's just, you know, how can people support the work that you're doing um, if people are interested in organizing? Um, do you have suggestions? I guess this is a multi-part final question. Um, and uh, where can people find you? Sure. People can find us on www.abolitionistlawcenter.org. Um, in terms of support, there's a number of, I mean, the the obvious easy way is making donations. We're a 501c3 nonprofit, but in terms of getting politically organized and, uh, you know, active, it depends wherever you're at. Uh, for most people in the country listening to this podcast, working directly with the Abolitionist Law Centers, probably not what you need to be doing, right, where you're at. Um, we're very Pennsylvania-focused. Um, but um, there's always opportunities for collaboration, but, you know, try to, if you're just trying to get involved um, or trying to figure out how to start, you know, comparable organizations, you can always reach out to us. We can put you in touch with organizers in Philadelphia or Pittsburgh, people that have been um, working who are formerly incarcerated or have been you know, family members of those who are, um, you know, been working to organize for, for quite some time. Um, and we can stay in touch, share ideas, talk through problems and, and strategies, and just, you know, increase our uh, understanding and, and our networks. Oh, and I will mention that there is a conference in Pittsburgh, the Fight Toxic Prisons Conference, coming up in June. I will June. be there. And hopefully me too. Yeah, yeah. Right. So looking forward to it. And we just had a uh, penny. Uh, please help me pronounce it. Penny Yachty. Penny Yachty. We just had him on uh, the podcast. Uh, his episode will be coming out soon as well. So, um, yeah, we're looking forward to that. And uh, it's June is right around the corner. The conference is what, June 6th through the 8th or the 8th through the 11th, right? Uh, I will take your word for it. That sounds okay. right to I me. Mean, I'm pretty um, sure we'll it's the eighth through the eleventh. We'll make sure everybody gets it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll post the accurate information. Don't go on my faulty memory here. Um, <laughs> but I, we both appreciate uh, having you. You know that, that you came on today, and uh, we know you're super yeah. busy. So thank you so much for making the time and giving us, you know, these very thoughtful responses to, you know, what sometimes were probably rather clunky questions so um thank you no the questions not at all uh, yeah thank you for having me really appreciate the work that that you all do there at beyond prisons and and beyond beyond prisons and all, all the other projects and advocacy and organizing you're involved in so uh, it's my pleasure thank you thank you so much brett